Hi, everybody. Welcome to the January 24th, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Tizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the fact that Colorado now leads the nation in the number of legislators who are not elected to the particular office they now represent. Since the 2018 election, seven state representatives and five state senators received their seats from vacancy committees, adding to another eight lawmakers who were appointed before 2018. Patty Calhoun from Westward, is this just another Colorado idiosyncrasy, or is there something here that we should actually be paying attention to? Something in the air that people always want to be upwardly mobile and leave their seats. I think it's just kind of odd right now because so many people have gone to so many different things, uh, but I think we should use that same vacancy committee rule for when we have to replace people at this table. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, and speaking of that, Michael Fields from uh, Colorado Rising Action, since David Copel was not uh, available today, he'll be back next week. Uh, Michael, it's good to have you here. Uh, this feels like there's a whole lot of power with some pretty small vacancy committees. It's, it's usually... Uh, less than a dozen people. They're considering usually a handful of candidates. Uh, I think the last time, uh, I think uh, now, Senator Chris Hansen, uh, he had 95, 121 votes, but it's 121 votes. I mean, there's not a whole lot of campaigning needed to break out of a group of five candidates. So I guess what I'm saying is that it's, it's easier than tr- spending all the money uh, going the other way. Is this something we need to pay more attention to? I think it's something that should be talked about. No system is perfect, um, and this is clearly not a perfect system. He did get 95 votes. Uh, Hansen did, uh, but Senator Rankin got six votes uh, and got and became a senator that way. So I think there's really no great answer. You have a special session or a special election that costs a lot of money, or you have the governor appointed in certain states, or you have these vacancy committees. I think one thing you could do is make sure these vacancy committees are a little bit larger, so more people are getting voices in the process. Eric Sonnen, political analyst and weekly columnist at Colorado Politics. Uh, what do you think? Is this going to garner more attention now that Colorado is leading the nation in this uh, regard? I think it will garner some discussion. I'm not sure anything is going to change, but I think it is an issue uh, worthy of discussion. The problem with these small groups deciding this, uh, whether it's a half a dozen people or a hundred some, is the people who volunteer for those kinds of jobs are the true believers. They're the true believers on the hard left or the tr- on the Republican side on the hard right. So in its own subtle way, it contributes to the polarization that we see. I have one, I don't know if it's a solution, but it'd be a partial solution. How about a law, a constitutional amendment, whatever, to prohibit legislators from leaving midterm to accept higher or accept or seek higher office or different office. So if your life circumstances change, your job changes, you have to move out of state, family emergency, life happens and you can resign then. But it, it would reduce the political ladder climbing and ladder shuffling we're talking about. I'd be intrigued with that. That's interesting. And uh, back for a second week in a row, Leanne Wheeler, principal at Wheeler Advisor Group, also an Air Force vet. Uh, Leanne, give us your take on this. Is this something that more call rounds you think will start paying attention to? We absolutely need to start paying attention to this. This is the, it occurs for me as the height of insider baseball. I get to decide um, which trajectory I take in my political career progression, and then it's not actually reflective of representative government. So, so those constituents don't get to inform that decision. Uh, and oftentimes, both Folks, not often, uh, actually, I would say rarely, the opposite of that, Um, they may agree not to seek re-election from that seat by taking that interim position or post. Most often, though, they do, 
and it sort of gives them this, this step up or, or, or unfair advantage when it comes time uh, to seek re-election for the seat. So we as constituents, we the people, must absolutely start paying attention to this. I like Eric's actually notion around creating some boundaries or structure around when it is appropriate to, to make that move uh, and, and when it isn't. The Senate impeachment trial of President Donald Trump officially started this week. Coloradans continue to play a significant role with Representative Jason Crow, Senator Michael Bennett, and Senator Cory Garner all making headlines. The matter of inclusion of witnesses is still up in the air as of this taping. A Reuters poll this week showed 72% of Americans, including 69% of Republicans polled, think witnesses should be allowed to testify. Patty, uh, of the Coloradans that we saw of uh, note in this, Who's making uh, the biggest impact that we're probably going to notice well after this trial is over? Well, I talked about this last week, that Joe Neguse had gotten an early start. Diana DeGette did very, very well. But Jason Crow so far has been, I think, the real star. He was just speaking as I got out of the car to get it come in here. But earlier, he's spoken so many times this week, and he manages to bring incredible intelligence and unbelievable experience to his discussion. On Wednesday, he was talking about the Ukrainian soldier who'd been killed specifically because of the lack of aid, and he really brought it home. So I think he has really done very well and is going to wear much better than some of the other blowhards we are seeing on this show. Over, I mean, this show, which is even worse. Um, this endless, endless, it's maybe not a show, yeah. Uh, this endless parade, let's just say go. that. Uh, I would love to see some witnesses, so we're not just hearing from the lawyers and the politicians, but we'll see if we get there. And We're not going to find out by tonight, I don't think. I think you're correct on that one. Uh, Michael, I, I realize uh, just by its very nature this is historical, but I've been having trouble trying to figure out um, the real impact going forward just because we're in, we seem to be in this political cycle for the last few years where it's all hot and bothered right now, but we forget how historically hot and bothered we were 30 days later because we're all hot and bothered about something completely different. So to say that things happening to Jason Crow or Michael Bennett or Cory Gardner in January 2020, if anyone's going to be paying attention to any of this happening when it really matters in November of 2020, but I've been known to be cynical. When you're looking at this, what do you think? I agree with you. I think things change so quickly. Uh, you know, you know, a few mo- months ago, there were, you're talking about Iran. You know, there's all these different issues that come and go, and impeachment has kind of come up and down throughout that process. Uh, it's the thing that we're focused on right now. I think uh, people know who Jason Crow is now because he's one of these people, and so that might help him out somewhat. But, uh, you know, an election comes, and, and you don't know what's going to happen. And uh, Mike Kaufman was somebody who uh, across the country was well-known for winning these swing races, and then he loses, and now he becomes mayor. I mean, things change all the time. And so I think when you look at the three main players in this right now, which is Cory Gardner, uh, who you know is on the jury of this. Bennett is too. Uh, he's still you know going around New Hampshire and he's taking a break from that uh, right now. But you look at it and, and look at what Crow is, is pushing and saying. You know we need witnesses and everything else. Uh, I think this process has been very similar so far to what the Clinton impeachment looked like. They had three witnesses, but they all went in front of the House. Uh, and so you know I think the House is where you deal with a lot of that stuff. And now that it's moved over to the Senate, there's going to be a discussion about it. But we have an election coming up this year. Uh, I think this impeachment thing is going to, you know, the people who really want it are, are for it and the people who don't are against it and you kind of end up in the same spot. And so it'll be, you know, interesting to see when the election comes uh, what people really think. 
Uh, Erica, in, in our two senators, uh, Bennett and Gardner, we have two folks who are looking for the opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to attention. Gardner would love to just be able to slink into an airport, get on a plane, not be followed by <laughs> um, uh, is it, uh, 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 Marshall from uh, Channel 9. I can forget his last name. He's going to kill me. Zellinger. Zellinger. Thank you, Marshall Zellinger. Um, uh, and then you have Michael Bennett, who's trying to take advantage of the time, saying, hey, look at me, because, hey, you'll be ideally voting for me in Iowa and New Hampshire. How successful are either of them doing at their particular goals uh, this week? I think Gardner is the one most on the hot seat. I mean, Michael Bennett, yes, he's running a long shot campaign for president. Any press is probably good press for Michael Bennett. But Gardner is the one who is the target number one of all the Senate seats in the country. He has a tremendous uphill fight on his hands. And as I've commented in columns and on this show, he has taken himself into almost a point of incoherence by his refusal to say anything because he's trying to please too many masters. He's trying to please Mitch McConnell. He's trying to keep the, the, the Trump base from, from, from doing something crazy against him, yet he's trying to be a mainstream Chamber of Commerce Republican. He's trying to get reelected in an increasingly blue state. And what you get when you try to please that many masters is mush, and that's what we have seen coming out of Cory Gardner. Yes, he is a juror. He can use that as his rationale. But at some point soon, he's going to have to say something more than he said to any TV camera so far. And what he said to TV cameras, it looks, I kept flashing back to Al Gore, that awful press conference of no controlling legal authority, where he just said the same phrase over and over again. And that's where Cory Gardner is now. The prosecution or the the House impeachment managers have presented their case. I think they're wrapping up today. One can only hope they wrap up today. I'm going to be very curious to see the defense case, whether that's over the weekend or early next week. I don't think anyone's going to allege, as Trump does, that this was a perfect phone call. If that is a defense case, I'm going to be very surprised. I assume the case is, yes, sort of guilty, but not, but not worthy of removal from office. And they won't use the phrase guilty, and they will obviously try to spin out of it. But the, the House case has been a solid case, and I'm going to see if the uh, Trump counsel really wants to refute facts or just argue that this does not rise to the level of removal from office. Uh, Leanne, take your pick. You have Jason Crow, you have uh, uh, Michael Bennett, you have Cory Gardner. Of the actions from all three of them this week, what stood out to you? And so I think that it's exciting, actually, that Colorado was on the map for a change with regard to these types of national discussions. Um, and in the end, we've been treating this entire matter as reality TV. Uh, so, so those who are managing campaigns can gather their sound bites, use them to their benefit. Uh, any and every candidate that's running for U.S. Senate against Cory Gardner uh, needs to be tending to the fact that he's been missing in action for the last couple of years. It's been said that he hasn't come down one side or the other with regard to where he stands on these issues. Those candidates have plenty uh, to, to go on to, to run against him uh, come November. And Jason, who is a litigator, I shared this on last week, um, he's a litigator and he's an Air Force vet and he is prepared for this role. And I think we're seeing that this week. This week, Colorado Parks and Wildlife officers confirmed that a pack of gray wolves are living in Moffat County. This comes, only, uh, this comes only weeks after a group submitted signatures for a ballot measure to reintroduce the endangered species in Colorado. Uh, Michael, when we see a report like this, who does it help when it comes to the ballot issue? Because I can see some people saying, hey, the wolves are already here, so why not open the door? And I can see other people saying, wolves are already here, we don't need a law that would let in more. What do you think? 
Yeah, I thought when I saw that that this is already a process that's happening. Uh, you have a, a, a pack of six wolves, and, and they've been spotted kind of here and there uh, besides that. And so, you know, maybe you have 10 or 15 wolves in the state. Uh, I think that really boosts the case to say, let this play out, let it happen. We haven't had wolves here for 80 years. Like, what's the rush to get this on the ballot and to reintroduce it now? Uh, I think also because there's a cost that's associated with it. It's $500,000 in order to do it. You're going to have to reimburse uh, people who, lo- who lose their livestock. Uh, you're also you know, could have a, a hit to uh, hunting tourism is what a lot of the, the people are saying in these counties. You have 25 counties uh, that have passed a resolution against this already. So it could really uh, help to deepen the rural-urban divide that's going on. But it is starting out very popular. There was a poll from CSU uh, that had it over 80%. Uh, I think that universities put the worst polling out method- methodology-wise. It's just they're all horrible. But uh, I think it is popular right now. As people learn more, will it continue to be? I don't know. But I think a lot of people are going to be educated uh, in the next few months about wolves in the state. It's like being against wolves, at least in the metro areas, but being against dogs and Subarus, and it doesn't happen in Colorado. (laughs) Uh, Eric, Governor Polis made a pretty uh, firm stance by saying, welcome, Uh, hoping I think the wolves had a Twitter feed and saying, welcome (laughs) to wolves to Colorado. Uh, Is this going to come down to an urban-rural divide for this ballot issue? Oh, urban-rural is always a feature of Colorado politics, and it will be a a feature here. I'll I'll keep this uh, somewhat brief. I'm just, I think it's symptomatic of the declining respect for institutions in our country that these wolves have decided to come to this state before the voters of this state have a chance to opine on it. It is symptomatic of so much that is wrong around here. <laughs> the chutzpah that these uh, wolves are showing. It's a well, well said, Eric. Uh, Leanne, what do you think about uh, the impact we're going to see? In Colorado politics, the, the wolves have already made their point. They're, we're here, sure. and now Colorado politics has to make its own point. What do you think is going to happen? Well, sure, it's been said, though, without the, the central stakeholders in this discussion, ranchers, um, those who would uh, see about uh, this entire cir- cycle of life, circle of life, not to quote the... the the, um, Lion King. the Disney, yeah, Lion King. Um, we, we've got to get to a place where we're hearing those voices, and it's not um, irrelevant, nor should it be ignored, that some of these rural communities are um, standing up against this. And so, uh, it's not an easy decision to make. But I would, I would incline to, to lean my ear toward those who would be affected uh, by such legislation passing, and and those groups coming together and informing the rest of us, those who would vote on such a, such an initiative. I believe. Believe in bringing things to the people, but I also believe those most most affected should come together and message um, their opposition as well. It sounds like we have that. Patty, what do you think? I mean, you have uh, wolves just almost as cute as dogs in Colorado. It's going to be hard to see if that vote will go down until they start tearing apart a cow. Um, here's the thing about the wolves. They came. They did not wait for the ballot measure. Do we really need this ballot measure? The wolves are here. Do the wolves want to be managed? Do we need another bureaucratic Mm. level? I mean, we've already seen all the problems with the Endangered Species Act. Maybe it's time to withdraw the measure. Let's see how the wolves play out. I mean, obviously you want to make sure there are some rules, but there have been ground rules before, 80 years ago with the wolves. But they came without us inviting them. They're ready to stay, presumably. So I don't think we actually need this measure. Proponents of the paid family leave legislative proposal announced this week that if the Colorado legislator can't pass the, same, pass the measure in this session, they'll take it straight to the fall's ballot, this fall's ballot. Pa- paid family leave has been a priority for Democrats for years, but it has faced an uphill battle in past sessions and critics within its own party, including Governor Jared Polis. 
Uh, Eric, this is, uh, we talked before the show, uh, when you have all the levers of power, as Democrats do, it, it does mean that you can pass anything you want, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to pass everything you want. Uh, where does this one go? I'm very curious to see if this ballot proposal move is just for legislative leverage and or if they're really determined to put it on the ballot and have the financial oomph and wherewithal to actually go. I'm, I'm not suggesting they don't, but I think it is an open question of whether this is a serious play or just legislative cosmetics right now. I'm fascinated, as your question indicated, Dominic, by the fact that the Democrats, as you say, control all the levers and have gotten many of their agenda items ticked off, particularly in the last in 2019 legislative session. This is the one, maybe along with death penalty, and we'll see where that uh, ends up this year. This is the one that they haven't been able to really put all the ducks in a row, put the constituencies together, dot the I's, cross the T's, and, um, and just really manage the issue within their own party. They don't need Republican votes. They just need to consolidate Democratic votes here and get the governor to be a, a little more perhaps enthusiastic about the thing. And they haven't been able to do it. And I don't know what it is about the particulars of the issue that have led it to be this particular issue that they're coming up short on. The devil is always in the details, and I think it is the details of this. It's not the concept. All Democrats and, and a significant number of others buy into the concept of this. It's how do you get those details right? Lynn, I think one of the arguments for uh, uh, the kind of democracy that we have in the United States is that it's not a uh, not direct democracy. We're just going to vote on every single bill. We actually elect some people who are going to represent yeah. us to get through some of these complicated issues. This feels like one of these complicated things are going to have a lot of arms and legs. If it's going to be passed, it should be in a session. But do you think they'll follow through if it doesn't get passed to actually see it on the ballot? I believe that it won't get passed in the session. There are a lot of internal politics. It's one thing to say we have a shared platform and another to get alignment behind that that platform and move out on it. Um, For me, this is something that actually should come before the people. We know that uh, we've a number of legislative sessions where this is being noodled, not unlike uh, death penalty. Bring it before the people and allow the people to make a decision about whether or not this is something we'd like to see come into law and then figure out how we need to pay for it. But part of that responsibility does come to us. We do send representative government. Uh, there seem to be things that get in the way, though, uh, as they negotiate uh, these types of um, legislation. And, and so I would be a proponent of bringing it before the people for vote. Patty, is the whole idea of a ballot issue more of a threat to legislators actually get something done, or do you think they'll follow through? I think they'll try to pull something together, but if you heard screaming around Colorado this week, it's because business owners were getting their property tax bills. (laughs) And these are people, whether or not they're affected by the minimum wage increase in Denver, they might be outside. Every business I've talked to that owns property is panicked about how much they are starting to now have to pay for their property and and coupled with other rising costs. So this is going to be a very heavily lobbied uh, thing. People will be lobbying against this. And if it goes to a ballot measure, you can see your next-door neighbor who might own a small business. You're going to hear from a lot of people. It's not like the death penalty, which is a very, very personal issue. Here you're really looking at an economic issue that affects a lot of the small businesses in this state. Michael, do you see the Republicans in the legislature taking advantage of this split in the party and the Democrats? 
Well, I think maybe if they can. I was, you know, I shouldn't have been surprised about it, but I was a little bit surprised uh, that that it's really fallen apart this quickly because uh, last year it was, you know, people haven't gotten into a room enough, they haven't talked enough, we haven't got enough people weighing in. So then they did this whole tour across the state. They come together with a plan, and then Governor Polis says, "I don't like that plan. I want to do it, uh, you know, not as a state-run entity, but as mandates to businesses in order to do it." And I think that's when you saw this ballot issue come up, and they're like, "We need, you know, this could totally fall apart again." And so I was just more surprised that they didn't have their ducks in a row going into session on this one. But I think on the Republican side, and what I think is people should decide on this. It's a Tabor issue. We're talking about you know raising taxes or fees on uh, businesses. Could be a billion dollars. That should go to the people. They should weigh in. They should decide. Let's get a quick take on this last one. This week, oil and gas producer K.P. Kaufman settled a lawsuit agreeing to pay $1 million and spend an additional $2 million to improve pollution controls at 67 locations in Colorado. Inspectors found that the company had not done enough to minimize emissions that form ground-level ground ozone. At this point, 93% of all of the 30, uh, 31, excuse me, 3,141 oil and gas storage facilities, easy for me to say, in the Denver area have been found to violate federal health standards. Now, Leanne, uh, Kaufman does not, KP Kaufman does not oversee all those nearly 3,200 sites, but that's a lot in the metro area. People are used to talking about oil and gas <laughs> issues in uh, Weld County and further far. Uh, because it's in the metro area, is this going to get more attention? Absolutely, and I'll say this. Um, it, is, it is this type of uh, negligence that drives the need for tighter control and brings out the folks to, to contemplate it. I'd also be curious to take a look at their cash flow statements as this $1 million fine doesn't sound like a lot relative to what they're probably earning, but if they don't have that on hand, then who picks up the cost for this cleanup? Good point. Uh, Patty, what do you think? Is this going to hit closer to home for folks when they hear about uh, you know, 3,100 sites in the metro area? Well, this is not going to be the last fine. People are getting much more concerned, not just about future fracking, but current conditions, air conditions. We just did a big story on Suncor, and people want to know why these businesses are here, why they aren't taking better care of the environment, and why the state isn't making them. Michael, is this a big settlement in the big scheme of things? I, I agree with Leanne. I mean, one million bucks, and we're talking about an oil and gas company. Yeah, if it's a small company, fine, but, you know, that's uh, the, the, the direct, uh, the amount of impact uh, might be negligible. What do you think? Sure, it's hard to know without looking at the financials of that company, but there's also a $2.5 million they have to spend on improvements to the facilities in order to fix the problem. I think it shows that we have strong federal and state standards that the system is working, and we know oil and gas production in the state is very important, but it has to be done the right way. And so, uh, you know, I think in any business, compliance should be a top priority, uh, but especially in the energy sector. Well, Eric, we were already told by Governor Polis the oil and gas wars are over. So clearly this is going to be just be put to bed and be done with it. What do you think? That's exactly where I was going. That is exactly where I was going, Dominic. And I am shocked that this issue even arises and that oil and gas is still being discussed in the state because our governor promised us that these issues were over. I tend to identify, I mean, with what everyone around the table said, but maybe particularly Michael. Compliance is critical. Environmental standards are critical. But at some level, in this case combination of regulation and litigation or threatened litigation apparently worked. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, I wrote a piece this week just about all the scams and hoaxes Coloradans have been falling for for over 150 years, but it is really pretty hard to beat the current situation in Aspen, where longtime Aspen 
exec, Aspen Ski exec Derek Johnson, managed to steal $3 million worth of skis, at least $3 million worth of skis over the years, and now has been indicted. And it's an amazing story. And you really think maybe they need a controller at Aspen Ski. Michael. Um, we know that Hickenlooper's had this ethics investigation, and there's money, federal funds that were used to pay the lawyer and do other things. Uh, the audit committee in the legislature had another shot to uh, look into this, and they decided not to do it, even though the Denver Post said it would be a good idea. So uh, I think they really should step up and, and look into what happened with those funds. Eric? Oh, we're surrounded by hypocrisy in our lives these days, but uh, Ken Starr raises it to a new particular level. Yes, I understand attorneys can represent any side of an issue. I understand they have to make a buck. But I think it is particularly rich for the person who argued so vehemently and led the case that Bill Clinton rose to the level of impeachment and removal for office, saying that these particular facts don't do that. It's a little rich for me. Liam? Sweeping the unhoused neighbors in order to facilitate the Martin Luther King uh, parade, that entire route, the man stood for justice and centering poverty in the work that we do. Sweeping unhoused neighbors for that event uh, was the height of disgrace as far as I'm concerned. Time to say something nice. Patty? Not only do Coloradans fall for scams, they like to get lit. Colorado, some people might have missed it. Denver was the town where the first outdoor holiday lights were invented, which we prove with that garish display at the city at City Hall that always stays up through the stock show. So if you haven't seen it yet, go see it. Be amazed. Stop by the Mile High Tree and listen to Colorado music. Just enjoy the end of January. We brought the world the cheeseburger and Christmas lights. You're welcome, dear world. Michael, your turn. Uh, Larry Walker got, uh, is getting inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and so uh, the first Colorado Rocky uh, to get inducted, it's a good thing for the city, and he gave us a, a decade of great baseball, so uh, congrats to him. And making history in his SpongeBob SquarePants shirt, that, that, was, that was nice. Eric, love that. Congrats to Larry Walker. Two longtime presences at the Colorado State Capitol, both fighting major health challenges. We've talked around the show over the past few weeks about former State Senator Lois Court, and we certainly wish her well in her battle against an autoimmune disease. A, f- a friend of mine and a longtime prominent lobbyist, Jennifer uh, Brandeberry, who before Christmas suffered an aneurysm, is on the comeback trail. It is a tough comeback trail, but she's out of the hospital and recovering, and we wish Jennifer well. Liam. I want to call out two beautiful uh, nonprofits in the Denver metro area, the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, who just opened Fusion Apartments uh, this week through grand opening, will house over 100 uh, unhoused families. And then Second Chance Center, uh, their vision for permanent supportive housing, Providence at the Heights. Uh, this week, uh, we're looking for volunteers to come along and help uh, 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 stage those apartments for 50 families uh, who will be coming on board with housing uh, in February. So shout out to both of those organizations. And I have to say something nice. It is my mom's birthday. So, Mom, happy birthday from your favorite kid. At least your favorite kid with the TV show. Uh, My brother and sister can get their own. Uh, Before we leave tonight, I want to remind you that that we are taking the show on the road. That's right. Colorado Inside Out is going out on the road, and you are invited to join us. Next Tuesday, January 28th at 1 p.m., Join us at the Academy for Lifelong Learning at 6500 East Gerard Avenue. It's basically Monaco and Hampton. And uh, you can check out a special live in-person edition of Colorado Inside Out. We're going to talk about the elections, break down all the different issues for that for 2020. And we saved a whole half hour just to answer your questions from the audience. We hope you can join us. It's free to get in, but if you want to be sure you get a seat saved, RSVP by emailing RSVP 
at rsvpcio at gmail.com or go to academyll.org for more details. See you on January 28th. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everyone here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Azzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.